Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. The following episode is part one of a two-part tale. I'll be dropping part two in a fortnight. And in the meantime, I do have another reissue of an old episode will be coming out as well. There's a shadowy tale from the medieval Near East that persists in the modern imagination. At some time in the 11th century, a heretical cult arose in the mountains of northern Iran and Syria. They lived in rugged castles, only approachable for near and penetrable passes. Approaching the fortress, you soon had the sense the hills had eyes. And if those eyes did not approve of your presence, acolytes would rain stones down on you from high above. If you made it through the valley, a steep, narrow goat path awaited. Thousands of feet above, the cult's eagle's nest, Alamut Castle, and its charismatic leader, a prototypical James Bond supervillain, if ever there was one. Sometimes referred to as the Old Man of the Mountain, and more on that in a second. This man was responsible for the murder of hundreds of sultans, administrators, and holy men. One tale of note. When the Crusaders arrived and set up four Christian kingdoms on the Levant, the cult brutally murdered the soon-to-be-crowned New King of Jerusalem. Rather than sending in an army, a small party of men arrived to court disguised as monks. They blended in perfectly, winning the trust of Conrad of Montferrat, a savvy, capable warrior who came to prominence through his actions in the Third Crusade. When they sprung their trap, Conrad was no match for two knife-wielding murderers. He never even saw them coming. On his way home from business, days after being elected king, these two men rode alongside him and unhesitatingly thrust their daggers into him. One shot apiece and the deed was done. The king bled out of the scene of the assault. Meanwhile, neither man even attempted to flee the scene. One was killed by the king's bodyguards, the other taken in and questioned. He said nothing, but they knew who he was. He was an assassin. What was strange, the hit was purportedly carried out on behalf of King Richard the Lionheart of England who was furious as nephew Henry II of Champagne, lost the crown to Conrad. It was an odd killing. The assassins almost never targeted Westerners. For one, they had no shortage of enemies in the Islamic world to keep them busy. The method of murder was exactly as first reported in the West by Catholic priests in Armenia. The killers were chameleonic, able to present as one of their own. And when it came time to deal the killing blow, it came swiftly dispassionately, and with a brutal precision. The assassin rarely attempted to fight their way out, and the brought in alive were even less likely to give a reason for the murder. Their choice of murder weapon was always the same, a concealed dagger, and their victims were always powerful people whose loss greatly affected their kingdom. According to 12th century reports, they were utterly heretical. For one, they were rumoured to eat pork, for a while at least, they did give up all orthodoxy, so for a few years this was possible. The explorer Marco Polo also claimed they got their name by his telling the Hashashans, as they smoked a lot of hashish. 
It's now more generally accepted the name comes from the Arabic word asas, meaning principle. They were men of principle. And this scans. Whether deeply religious or in their brief heretical phase, they always followed the teachings and principles set out by their leader. In another tale which comes down from Marco Polo, the old man had a valley blocked off from the world at large. Inside the valley he built a magnificent pleasure dome based on religious depictions of paradise. He drugged acolytes into unconsciousness before magically transporting them into the valley. Every pleasure imaginable was theirs, from stunning vistas to music, sumptuous feasts to, one presumes, 72 virgins. The acolytes truly believed they were in heaven, till suddenly they were thrust back into the real world. On coming to, the old man was there to greet you. From day one, this man had educated you in the ways of the world. Now he was here to console you for having attained and lost heaven. There is a way to return, you know. Just take this dagger, and when the time is right. Well, you know how the rest plays out. This part of the legend is categorically false. There was no pleasure dome built for nefarious purposes. The founder of the cult, an Ismaili preacher named Hassan Isaba, became an old man living in a mountain fortress. But that sobriquet, old man of the mountain, belonged to a later leader. We'll discuss that man, Rashid ad-Din Salam, in part two, as he is often considered the greatest of the assassin chiefs. It is fair to say, though, Hassan Isaba was something of a supervillain. The man practically invented terrorism. To discuss Saba and the assassins, we need to know a little about the politics and religion of his time. The following is reductive. We have a lot of information to share. Hassan was born on an indeterminate year, probably 1050 AD, in the city of Gom, south of Tehran. He was born to a Twelver Shia family. Regarding Shia and Sunni, Twelver and Ismaili, in 632, Islam's originator, the Prophet Muhammad, died without a clear succession plan. Two factions developed in the power vacuum. One, the Sunni, believed Abu Bakr, an early and learned follower of Muhammad, should take the reins. Bakr was named Muhammad's deputy, his Khalifa, from which we get the term Caliphate. Another faction backed Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali. They became known as the Shiatu Ali, the party of Ali. They later shortened this to Shia. Though initially a political division, both groups' religious views diverged over time. Power, for the most part, stayed with the Sunni. Ali did get a run as caliph in 656, but his short run was mired down in an ugly civil war. He was murdered in 661, ushering in the Sunni Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyads remained in power for a century, before losing power to the Abbasids, also Sunnis. In the meantime, the Shia followed a shadow caliphate run by a series of imams, mostly comprised of descendants of Ali and his wife Fatima. Being cut off from power didn't mean the Shia didn't attempt to take over on occasion. On several occasions between 680 AD and 750s, the Shia did attempt to rebel. Several preachers took on increasingly messianic personas, and they also picked up a number of discontented peoples. One of the side effects of the spread of Islam was, owing much to it being through military conquest, 
a class of disaffected, conquered people coalesced. These people often found themselves locked into a lower social class than they belonged to pre-conquest. Many were antagonistic towards the religion of the oppressors. The many were also open to an edgy, alternative version of that religion, which promised them fairness and equity. We don't need to go into a great deal of detail on the uprisings, they were all pretty similar. Charismatic leader gathered a dedicated following through promising his followers better. Once of a significant size, that faction took a shot at overthrowing a local ruler by force. However the violence started off, sooner or later it gravitated towards a traditional showdown, two large groups facing off against one another in a battlefield. The bigger, more powerful Sunni faction always won. The space of attempted putches ran out of steam in the mid-8th century. Now Shia Islam itself was fractious. Two sects we need to discuss are the Twelvers and the Ismailis. When the Shia reached their seventh imam, they ran into an important juncture. Jafar ibn Muhammad originally intended his son Ismail to follow in his footsteps and become the seventh imam. But for some unspecified reason, the two men had a falling out. Ismail was banished, and when the imam passed in 765, his youngest son Musa took over. The Ismaili sect separated from the rest of Shia. They built a new doctrine concerned with uncovering hidden truths. At the heart of their doctrine, also a radical desire to oust the Sunni from power. The remainder of the Shia followed the succession of imams until they hit number 12. The 12th imam, Muhammad ibn al-Hassan, disappeared mysteriously in 874. His followers, known as the Twelvers, believed he ascended into a spiritual realm and will return alongside the prophet Isa, it's Jesus, on Judgment Day. By Hassan Isaba's day, the Twelvers were largely moderate, the Ismailis radical. So in short, Hassan grew up a smart kid in a less than privileged set, but among the more conservative of that group. Now that said, one could imagine he had something of a chip on his shoulder. His father's bloodline was from Yemen, where he claimed to be a descendant of the Himyaritic kings of southern Arabia. They followed Judaism and ruled over much of the country, till one day they massacred a Christian enclave. The massacre brought down the wrath of the Ethiopian Aksumite kingdom in the 520s, and the Aksumites destroyed their kingdom. As a teen, he was a self-described seeker and hoped to become a scholar of Twelver Shia. That all changed when his father moved the family to the city of Ray, a city known for its radical thinkers. In his late teens, he fell in with the company of an Ismaili preacher named Amira Zarab, who patiently debated the young Hassan over many points of their faith. Amira hadn't radicalized Hassan outright, but their debates opened his mind to other possibilities. His conversion to the Ismaili sect came after the young man caught a mysterious, life-threatening illness. He pulled through, claiming his near-death experience gave him all the insight he needed. On recovery, he sought out an Ismaili tutor. There's a legend around Hassan's turn to supervillainy that comes through the 19th century poet and writer Edward Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald states in his introduction to his translation of The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a book of Persian poetry, 
There were once three young, ambitious friends. They went to school together, where each child excelled. Omar Khayyam, now known to us as a poet, was an excellent mathematician and astronomer. Hassan, a theologian. A third young man was a budding politician, who came to be known as Nizam al-Mulk. The three men made a pact when one achieved fame, they would help the other two get to where they needed to be. The legend tells that Nizam al-Mulk was the first to reach prominence, quickly rising through political circles to become vizier, a high official, to the Seljuk Sultan. Both men approached Nizam and were offered governorships in far-flung regions. Neither accepted. Omar Khayyam wanted nothing more than an academic life. And if you've read his poetry, you'll know this. A life full of passion and pleasure. Hassan, on the other hand, was rather hurt by the offer and chose to put himself forward for his friend's position at the first opportunity. Feeling threatened, Nizam dug up dirt on Hassan. He hoped to disgrace him so badly he'd have to leave the kingdom immediately. And whatever he found worked, an ashamed, henceforth vengeful Hassan left for Egypt. Uh, Well, this is another lie. Nizam al-Mulk, who did become vizier in 1072, was three decades older than the two other men. Al-Mulk and Hassan didn't know one another, however, and would cross paths on a couple of occasions. The circumstances of Hassan's exile were rather different. Hassan suddenly left Ray in 1076, first for Isfahan in central Iran, then Azerbaijan in the South Caucasus, and then finally Egypt, via modern-day Lebanon and Palestine. His studies in Ismailism led to him becoming a missionary, an active recruiter to the cause, a vocal political agitator considered a threat to the order. It is believed al-Mulk himself ordered Hassan's arrest. On his journey, he ran into further trouble elsewhere while proselytizing. In Farquin, Turkey, he was expelled from the city after making claims no one but a Shia imam had the right to interpret religious texts. En route via Damascus, Syria, he ran into trouble of another kind when a military conflict broke out. But he finally arrived in Shia-controlled Egypt in 1078, where he was warmly welcomed by the establishment. Even in Egypt, ruled by a Fatimid Shia regime, his radical preaching got him in trouble yet again. Egypt's top general ordered him imprisoned, then expelled upon release to North Africa. In 1081, he was placed on a French ship, but the ship sank en route. Hassan was rescued, then dropped off in Syria. From there, he snuck back into Persia. Hassan Isaba spent most of the following decade preaching his gospel in the far-flung regions of Persia, especially in the rugged mountains of the north. Locals there were resistant to the spread of Islam. Many of his converts felt similar animosities towards the regime as he did. They were tough, resourceful people who could handle themselves in a fight and many were happy to sign up to any cause that might bring them a better life. In Khurasan, to the north, Hassan Isaba built himself a small nation's worth of followers. This in itself presented a problem. Now you have an army, what are you going to do with it? Past efforts at revolution were all failures. Like in 680, a group aligned with Ali's son, Hussein, tried to overthrow the Umayyad Caliphate. All but one of the conspirators were executed. 
Another movement in 685, fighting on behalf of another of Ali's sons, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, lasted for two years before they were done away with. Dozens of other groups, one of whom bore a resemblance to the Indian thuggy, while well, they ritualistically strangled their victims, all fell by the wayside. Hassan realized he couldn't ever go toe-to-toe with the Sunni army. He needed a force of special operatives who could blend in, then strike down the leaders unexpectedly. If he could get people to believe it a righteous act, he was a good way there. Just convince them an action of removing an irreligious leader was not just right, it was their ticket to paradise. And if these people were bold enough, it would cause ripples of terror that would spread well beyond the Islamic world. That was all good, but sooner or later, the enemy would mount a counterattack on their terms. What Hassan also needed was a mountain fortress so unapproachable, no one would ever attempt to counterattack. Alamut Castle was ideal. Set on a narrow ridge in the middle of Yelbers Mountains, the castle was only approachable by a steep, narrow path. It was currently owned by another sect. That was not going to stop Hassan. He sent several of his followers to the surrounding villages to convert locals. In September 1090, with several of his own sect now well embedded in the castle, he was snuck into Alamut. Hassan delivered the owners an ultimatum. He had 3,000 gold dinars on him to buy the castle. The owners could take the money and leave. If they refused, Hassan would have them all killed. The previous owners took the money and left. Hassan stayed at Alamut Castle for the rest of his life, another 35 years all up. In that time, he never returned back down the mountain. His cult continued to grow. The assassins captured several other mountain fortresses through similar means. First blood was shed soon after. One of Hassan's missionaries came into conflict with a muezzin, an official who calls the people to Friday prayers. The missionary tried to convert the man, who refused to give the assassin the time of day. This led to his murder. Vizier Nizam al-Mulk was so furious he ordered the assassin responsible executed, his body subsequently to be dragged through the streets. In 1092, in reprisal, Sultan Malik Shah ordered two expeditions to Alamut to kill the assassins. Hassan only had a force of around 70 men to defend Alamut, but they withstood both sieges. On October 14, 1092, the assassins took out their first major target. Vizier Nizam al-Mulk continued to wage war against the cult. The vizier was travelling from Isfahan to Baghdad with an entourage when approached by a Sufi travelling in the opposite direction. Drawing no suspicion, he was allowed to approach the vizier. Once within striking distance of the man, the Sufi, an assassin named Bu Tahir Irani, drew his dagger and stabbed the vizier to death. This was the first of nearly 50 successful assassinations carried out in Hassan Isaba's lifetime. All the victims of this time were princes, generals, governors, and holy men, who called for action against the Ismaili. The names of the killers were entered onto a roll of honor. The cult continued to grow, even infiltrating the Sultan's army. Many high officials refused to leave the house without chainmail armor under their clothes. Further military expeditions were sent after them. 
Those surrounding villages were often pillaged. Most of the mountain fortresses withstood the attacks. One expedition in 1107 was nearly derailed from within. False reports of uprisings elsewhere held them up for over a month. Insiders are caught then delayed further by starting a religious debate. If the mission was being sent to depose the assassins as heretics, can we honestly say they are heretics? And if so, how? All the while, assassins within the court attempted to kill the prominent emir, speaking the loudest against him. In this case, the assassination attempt failed. Ultimately, in this one case, they did lose the fortress. The siege was extremely costly, however. It only drove home certain castles held by the assassins, Alamut included, would be several orders more difficult to take. When Hassan Isaba passed in 1124, they moved a long way towards peace with the Sunni, in independence from the caliphate. One tale told of their fight for legitimacy. Hassan sent a large sum of money to the Sultan with a request for a meeting. When rebuffed, Hassan sent another gift, days later. One morning, the Sultan awoke to find a dagger, blade stuck deep into the floor, next to his bed. The Sultan, clearly shaken, ordered the incident be kept secret. Hassan sent him a messenger the following day. The message? Did I not wish the Sultan well? That dagger which was stuck into the hard ground would have been planted into his soft breast. And for a while after this, peace ensued. But of course, this would not always be the case. Crusades featuring glory-seeking Europeans began in 1095 and would continue in the region for centuries after. In Egypt, a new regime, the Mamluks, comprised of enslaved Central Asians from the Altai Basin, would take over, changing the geopolitical landscape. Of course, the unstoppable Mongol horde eventually arrived on the scene. And we'll cover all of that in part two, The Old Man of the Mountain, in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice, and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.